Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. First of all, let me, uh, let me say thank you to the church. Uh, I know if Pastor Justin was here, he would also tell you uh, thank you from the bottom of our heart for honoring us uh, for Pastor Appreciation uh, Month or whatever that is. Uh, thank you, though. It means so much to us that you know and will be willing to come pray for us. Um, but I want you to also know that there are two people that are behind us that make us really who we are, and that would be our precious wives. And so today happens to be Miss Bryn's birthday, so if you, if you wanted to celebrate her and, and honor her, I mean, you could send her some birthday texts or some phone calls, uh, but then also, man, my wife Rachel is sitting right here. So could we just show them our appreciation to them as well? Thank y'all. I promise you <laughs> that I would not be the man that I am standing here today without the precious gift of my wife and the help me that she is to help me fulfill this calling and just really to be the man that I am. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you guys are into this debate at all, but there was a time in my life when I was a sure, just strictly PC guy. And it was back in a time when I really didn't know much about Mac computers, Macintosh, Apple, however you want to say it. But my father-in-law, Jim, was his name. He was a computer programmer, and he was super smart, and he was an avid Mac guy. He tried for years to get me to come over to the Mac world, to the Apple world, but PCs are really all that I knew, and I am definitely still to this day technologically challenged, and if anybody in the room knows that more than anybody, it would be Elizabeth. I have trouble starting my computer, much less using it, and so I really am technologically challenged, and I didn't want to have to learn something new, so I basically learned how to hack around and peck around on a computer to try to make it work. And the idea of switching from PC to a Mac was just like, that scared me to death. But Jim kept telling me, listen, man, Macs are even more user-friendly than the PC. They're made for guys like you. And I'm like, well, that sounds good. He would tell me, they, it's going to last way longer. I'm just telling you. I designed these things. I programmed these things. I'm just telling you, it's going gonna, it's gonna to last longer. He said, and by the way, there's this thing called an Apple Store you have a problem, you just walk in, and man, they, they do crazy things there, cool for you. They teach you how to use them. The customer service is better. The quality of the parts are better. Your programs are going to run better. There's definitely more security on a, an, an Apple device. He just kept on and on. He goes, listen, just, just come on over, and you're going to see. Well, I was really convicted that I really needed to switch over to an Apple. I was convicted. And for a couple of years, I kept weighing back and forth the benefits and cost analysis and all that. But I knew in my heart it was going to be right for me to switch over because he started letting me use his on occasion. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is sweet. But then I don't know what happened. Nate, I mean, like one day, 
I just woke up and I was in an Apple store. And I came home and I had been converted to now being a completely solely one billion percent Apple guy. And I'm not going back. That's just the way it is. Now, I'm not trying to start a fight here. I'm just trying to tell you, I know some people out there, and you would agree with me. But here's the deal. I was convicted, but I hadn't quite yet converted. And there's a difference between conviction and conversion. You see, I saw the benefits. I knew it was going to be right. I knew it would be better. But then just one day, something happened inside of me, and I just just decided that I was going to be a Mac guy. Now, let me, let me stop here and interject something. I think there are many that feel the same way about Jesus as the way I felt about PCs and Macs. I think there are many people here in LaGrange that listen by way of internet, that are listening right now as you're driving down by way of 71, maybe you're on some other back road and you're, you're here with me, you would say, yeah, I'm convicted that Jesus is the way to God. Yeah, I, I believe that. I believe the Bible is true just like you do. I share some of your convictions about right and wrong based on that. I, I share your conviction that we need to go to church. I share your conviction about prayer. But I don't know if you really may have ever been converted. See, what's interesting, though, is unlike being able to go from just one day saying, I'm convicted and now I need to convert over to a Macintosh, being convicted about Jesus, you just don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to be converted. It's not how that happens. But I think a lot of people think it is. So a lot of people just they 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 just say, hey, you know what? I was born in the church, and this is just kind of what I've always believed, and I'm just as convicted about those things as you are. But but you've never had a conversion. I mean, we we would go, we would we would we probably go to our deathbed, uh, probably believing 99% of the same things, and be willing to die for those convictions. But some have just never made it over to conversion because you thought that you could just choose to be converted. And that's, that's really not how this works. You see, we're in Daniel chapter 4. And so if you want to go ahead and turn there today, we're going to talk about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar gives us his testimony in Daniel chapter 4 about how he moved from being convicted to truly being converted. And we're going to read his testimony. Daniel chapter 4 starts out like Daniel chapter 3 with this kingly decree. It's similar to chapter 2 that the king has a dream and needs an interpretation. He again asks for help, but the help that he gets is just as impotent as they were in chapter 2. But something truly supernatural and amazing happens in chapter 4. What we read about is, is how Nebuchadnezzar is moved from conviction about the God of heaven to being converted to the God of heaven. This is his personal testimony. If you were ever wondering, where is the gospel in the Old Testament? Where could I find an Old Testament track that I could give to somebody? Here it is. It's right here in Nebuchadnezzar chapter 4. 
Nebuchadnezzar tells us how he wants to praise and honor the Most High God for what he did in his life, listen, for what God did in his life to lead him and to drive him and to change him with giving him a godly sorrow that led him to true repentance. And see, you and I don't arrive at godly sorrow that leads to repentance on our own. We don't choose that. That is something that God has to do on our heart at a moment in time. Nebuchadnezzar's testimony of going from convicted to converted is really the way the Lord works in every person's life. So you may be here and, and you may be asking, you know, so, so pastor, come on, why do I need this? I, I've heard this. Why do I need to listen to this? Well, maybe you would say, I was born believing God. I've always believed in God. And I would say, man, I praise God for your conviction about that. But even the demons believe in God. But they've never been converted. Man, I share your pastor. Pastor, I share your convictions about, about good works even. I share your, your convictions. But, but I'm just saying, was there ever a point in time where, where something happened so significantly in your heart, you would say, I moved from conviction to now I am truly converted. And I really didn't have a whole lot to do with that except just say yes. Our text this morning is kind of going to tell a story, and, and I'm going to give you kind of the outline on a me- mega scale, and then we're kind of going to jump down into it and get into the nitty-gritty. So, so I borrow some of this outline from a great preacher. His name is John Phillips, and, and I think he just kind of encapsulated it so well. I put my own spin to some of it, but this is his idea. And basically, we go at a king being convicted, And how that works out is there's this king cowering in his bedroom in panic. And then we're going to see a king crowing on the rooftop in pride. And then we're going to see a king crawling on all fours in a pasture. And then we're going to see a king contrite on his throne in praise. Now we have a king converted. How did that happen? You guys have heard me preach and teach through these past few chapters about how evil Nebuchadnezzar was. Let's read a little bit. Let's just read one verse, and then we'll read the rest of the verses as we go through the text this morning. So I'm going to be reading from Daniel chapter 4, and I'm just going to read verse 37 to kind of give you the end of the story. (laughs) So I wonder if you just rise your feet really quickly, Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, in honor of the reading of God's word. Daniel 4, 37 says it this way. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. Watch this. For all his works are true and his ways are just. Pay attention here. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. You may be seated and may God bless his word. Just by way of telling you something I forgot. We have these little booklets back here. Um, Kellen, would you just stand up and just wave your hand? That's good. Kellen. All right. We love you, Kellen. All right, now take your left hand and just point it out. Yep, now point it down. Just do this, right? Because right, no, right back over there. 
on that shelf right there are these little booklets. And right back there, if you want one of these, some of the church bought these, you can take notes along. It has the scripture, and then it has little note pages beside it for the book of Daniel. If you want one of those before you leave today, you can get up even now and go get one. Uh, please take those. We want you to have those. Justin, did I, did I do okay, Pastor? Okay, thank you, sir. He's been telling me for weeks, we've got to do that. And I'm like, yes, and then I forget. So, uh, But let's look, at, let's look at how this happens, okay? Now, now, if you've been with us for a while, you've noticed that, that God's been convicting Nebuchadnezzar all along. He's been doing things to him to convict him, but, but Nebuchadnezzar is still wrestling with the Lord. So I want you to let's look at verses 1 through 3. We're going to come back to those, not this week, but next week. But let's set the table. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, Watch this. He's about to pronounce something that the Apostle Paul would have used in one of his letters. May your peace abound. Nebuchadnezzar is speaking Aramaic of a Hebrew word, shalom. You don't go around telling people about shalom unless you've truly experienced it from his perspective. It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. So he's saying, I mean, I didn't have anything really to do with this. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar, what are you talking about, bro? You were just throwing people in the fiery furnace for not bowing down to you last week. What's happened? Let me tell you how it happens that we move from conviction to conversion, first by this, the Lord seriously expresses the reality of salvation. The Lord seriously expresses the reality of salvation. Psalm 10 verse 4 says this. It says, the wicked in his haughtiness does not seek him. There is no God in all his schemes. In other words, let me tell you this, unless God begins to reveal to you the reality of his salvation, you will never seek it. God is the first cause in all this. He's the guy, God is the, is the one who takes the first initiative to begin to reveal to you even the possibility that he exists and that you need to be saved from your sin by him. There's no one that seeks God. God seeks man. It's the Lord who then begins to seriously express the reality of salvation. In verses 4 through 18, we're going to see how the Lord will begin to trouble your heart to get your attention. God's going to do some drastic things to grab your attention because he seriously wants to reveal to you the reality of his salvation. Look in verse 4, if you will. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. This is probably late in his reign. Most scholars say that between the end of chapter 3 to the beginning of chapter 4, maybe 30 to 40 years have passed. And this is toward the end of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. He's successfully secure, enjoying a time of peace and relaxation in his palace. But then the Lord brings a tremendous crisis into his life. You see, the Lord's been working in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar for a while. In chapter 1, we read about him encountering these godly teenagers who won't even eat his food. 
In chapter 2, God reveals to him this great image and then this great stone, Jesus, who's going to just bring his old kingdom down. In chapter 3, the Lord speaks to him and dealing with him when Jesus shows up in the fiery furnace. You see, God was seeking him. God was doing something in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And in these instances, it is God overwhelmingly communicating that judgment is coming, but yet there's salvation in the God of heaven and in his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 5, I saw in a dream that it, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my head in visions in my mind, they kept alarming me. The, the word there, fearful, is a, an interesting word. It means extreme terror. It just doesn't mean that he was afraid. It means he was extremely terrified, so much so that they kept alarming him. Beloved, God has a, a way of seriously getting your attention. You're never in a place where you're so protected that God can't break through. Verse 6 and 7, the Bible says, So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the, the, the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. So we see this similar pattern that when God begins to trouble your heart, that when God begins to invade and express the reality of salvation, we always tend to turn to the same people to solve that problem. Nebuchadnezzar had done this before. He sought out the people. They hadn't been able to help him before. Now what makes him think they're going to be able to help him now? So we begin to look for when God begins troubling our heart that we need him and need to be in relationship with him. We turn to the same people, the same counselors, the same doctors, the same psychiatrists, the same politician, the same talk show host, and we're looking for an answer to a problem that they cannot solve. Nobody has the answers to the deepest problems in the human heart and the human experience but God himself. So verse 8. But finally, whew, thank you, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, and I related the dream to him. Now, he should have started here. I mean, when God starts troubling your heart, you should probably start with the people of God, but he didn't. But here's the thing I want you to know. There's a witness there's a witness. God, God leads us to a witness. That's, that's what he does. He troubles your heart, and then he leads you to a witness. And this witness loves Nebuchadnezzar. We get a glimpse of that in verse 19, which we'll cover in a minute. Daniel didn't approve of the practices of this king, but he loved him as a person. Daniel had obeyed what Jeremiah 29 said, to, to make his home into Babylon and to seek its welfare and to pray for the city. By the way... <laughs> How do you feel about your Babylonian neighbors right here in America that are coming from other countries? How do you feel about their politics and their offensive signs and their offensive rallies and their offensive protests? Do you stand in judgment over them or do you pray for them and weep for them and their salvation? Politics is a different angle. That ain't the church's job. But the spiritual condition of these people's souls is our job. 
And through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord begins to seriously express the reality of salvation in this dream. So verse 9, Belta says, our chief of the magicians, since I know that the spirit of the Holy God is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the, the visions of my dream which I've had, I've seen along with this interpretation. And God then uses Daniel to tell Nebuchadnezzar about the reality of salvation. Verses 10 through 17, let's quickly read those and then we'll unpack them. Verse 10 says, Now there were visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached the sky. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the sky dwelt under its branches, and all the living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as a lamb went bad, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven, and he shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree. Cut off its branches, strip off its foliage, scatter its fruit, let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth, let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and this decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream is super disturbing. Because Nebuchadnezzar realizes, oh no, this is yet about me. God is talking directly to me. Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be cut down. My judgment is coming upon you. So let's give a brief summary. Nebuchadnezzar sees this incredibly large tree, like the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. It reaches to the heavens and it's visible to the whole earth. It had beautiful leaves and fruit to feed everybody. Animals, they find shade. Birds live in its branches and everybody's fed from this tree. And if this tree represents the king, and it does, what a testimony then to the greatness of, of his kingdom. However, tragedy is on the way. You've heard about it. In his visions, while he was dreaming in his bed, an angelic watcher came down from heaven, described here as a watcher or a holy one. This term only appears here in Daniel 4, and really only here in the New Testament. His message is ominous. He says, chop down this tree, scatter its fruit, strip off its leaves, let all the beasts and all the birds flee, but leave this stump... And then let his mind be changed from a man's mind to a beast's mind. And then there's these seven periods of time. And and why? Why, What is all this about? If it's about Nebuchadnezzar, then, then why? What is this about? Well, verse 17 tells us that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. I suspect that Nebuchadnezzar has a strong inkling to the meaning of this vision. Still, he pleads with Daniel to provide the interpretation because he knows, and he says it three times in this chapter, that that inside of Daniel resides the spirit of the holy gods. In other words, let me just tell you practically what that means. The king doesn't need a yes man. He needs a truth man. See, the head of state needed a man of faith to speak into his life, and Daniel was such a man. Because Daniel wasn't going to bow down before, and he's definitely not going to change the message now. 
And what I'm asking is, is maybe would you be willing to boldly and humbly walk in the steps of Daniel and just share your faith? You see, the Lord began to enter into his life. Jesus, the Bible tells us, came to seek and to save that which is lost. And, and, and Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God, comes down and begins to put people into the life of Daniel and uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and he'll do that in your life. He'll put people in your life. He'll bring some type of angelic witness into your life. He'll put a situation in your life. He'll arrange circumstances in your life that point out your self-righteousness and that judgment is coming and that there's a tremendous need for you and I to be saved from the judgment is coming. This is how God works. He seriously begins to show us the reality of his salvation. You'll just find that you're going through a season of life. Everything looks like it's okay. You're getting along. Things are cool. And then the next thing you know, the bottom begins to fall out. And then these, these, these preachers on TV, you can't stay away from them. You're just flipping through the channels. You're trying to watch football. But there it is, a guy at a podium preaching to the need of your heart. And you hear the gospel. Or you hear it on the radio, or you go into a bathroom, and there's something that says, hey, have you ever wanted to hear good news? And it's this little booklet, and it starts talking about Jesus. Or or you go to the hotel room, and you go to put your socks in a drawer, and there's a Gideon Bible that you've seen for a hundred times, but now you open it up, and you start reading, and you don't know why. Because God expresses the reality of his salvation to you over and over Because he gives a witness, God gives a warning, he gives the gospel, and God gives tremendous grace before he brings judgment. Because this is the kind of God that we serve. So let me ask you this morning, has God ever gotten a hold of you? Could it be that maybe this morning, that's what he's doing right now, is that God is getting your attention because he is seriously expressing the reality of his salvation. Secondly, the Lord specifically exposes the rebellion of sin. The Lord specifically exposes the rebellion of sin. Proverbs 16.5 says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. See, it's not just that we're different, we're immoral, or we have a difference in what's right and wrong. God begins to specifically call out sin. I need you to know this, that when God begins to express the reality of his salvation, it's salvation from sin, and you can rest assured you're going to feel exposed by the rebellion of your sin. The Lord uses a witness to deliver a somewhat burdensome message. The Bible says that Daniel is dismayed, he's perplexed, alarmed, if you will. I don't think that Daniel's fearing for his life, but he's fearing for what would happen to Nebuchadnezzar. But these guys have spent many years together, and Daniel doesn't allow his compassion for Nebuchadnezzar to get in the way of delivering the commission from his heavenly father. Daniel says that he wishes the dream was about others, but Daniel has to do what Ephesians 4.15 says. He has to speak the truth in love. And Daniel, just like Moses went before Pharaoh, just like Elijah went before the prophets of Baal and Ahab, just like John the Baptist went before Herod, just like Jesus went before Pilate, Daniel tells the king not what he wants to hear, but what he needs to hear. 
So look in verse 19 and 22. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. If sharing the gospel about people being condemned to hell is something that doesn't give you a little reason to pause, I think you might have missed the whole thing. We don't do this with callousness in our heart and righteousness and just beat people over the head. It should cause us to really have compassion. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, my lord... uh, that's Daniel. Daniel replied, my Lord, if the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. But nevertheless, the tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beaches of the field dwelt, and in whose the branches and birds of the sky lodged, King, it's you. For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. Daniel makes it clear, we're talking about you, O king. Verse 23, and that the king saw this angelic watcher, a holy one descending from heaven, saying, chop down the tree and destroy it. Yet leave the stump with its roots, but the band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. Let it be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the tree that's going to get cut down. Judgment's coming to you. And you're going to live like an animal in the outdoor until seven periods of time. That's the symbol. That's the number of perfection. Some scholars say, is it literally seven years, or does it refer to whatever it's going to take for Nebuchadnezzar to realize this? That's debatable. Verse 25, and it says there at the very end, that seven times a period of time will pass over you until you recognize, right, that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, this this is coming upon you until you learn that you have rebelled against God. You sought to build your own kingdom. And isn't that what Isaiah says, that all of us like sheep have gone astray and each of us have turned to our own way. Sin, in its ultimate form, is just prideful rebellion against the king of heaven. And so you're going to experience this, that this is coming. God's going to expose the rebellion of your sin until you learn that he is God and you are not. Verse 26 says, and it, and it was commanded to leave this stump at the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after, after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Wow. Verse 27 Therefore, O king, may may my advice be pleasing to you. Now watch. Here's Daniel. Here he is. Here's the witness. This is what we do. We tell people. Break now away from your sins 
by doing righteousness and from your iniquities, by showing mercy to the poor, and in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. You see, God is a gracious and loving God who is quick to forgive and shows mercy. So he tells him, listen to my counsel. Stop your sinning and your rebellion and start doing the right thing. Stop your wicked injustices and show mercy. And if you do, God may be kind to you and lengthen your prosperity. It's interesting to me that Daniel pleads with Nebuchadnezzar to simply repent. Did you notice how God specifically exposed the sin of rebellion? He tells him to stop sinning and to turn from his iniquity. Well, you would need to understand maybe what those mean to understand so you don't miss it. You see, the word sin there is the basic word for sin, and it literally means to miss the mark. So all sin is in some way is anything you think, say, or do that is contrary to what God has already said. You've missed the mark of God's holiness, his perfect standard. This is what God says he is. This is what God says he wants you to do. And when we don't do that or we do something other than that, that is sin. It's missing that mark. But then there's another word that's not here, but, but I want you to show how, how Daniel goes from the small to the big. He, he bypasses a word that's called transgression. And transgression literally means to not only just miss the mark, but to go beyond the mark. It means a willful going beyond a command. In other words, intentional disobedience. It's not that you just went past the stop, stop sign. You said, I'm not going to stop. I'm definitely going to go. And this is the progression of sin. We just like, well, God, I don't think I'm going to do it your way. I'm kind of going to do it my way, and I'm willfully going to do it. Then you end up where Daniel says, iniquity. See, iniquity, iniquity means something incredibly different. Iniquity is premeditated and a desire to not repent. So it's not only do I say, yeah, I know that you've got a stop sign there, God, but, but I'm just kind of going to go past that willfully, and then I'm going to continue to do so, and I'm going to think about other ways, and I'm going to plan to continue to go for it because I am never going to stop when you say stop. And you know that. Because you've heard it said, I'm not the first person to say it, but sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you want to pay. That's what sin does. When you say, I'm not going to stop, then you can't stop. That's the nature of what sin does. That rebellion in your heart, it just grows and grows. And I say, we don't have to look beyond the Bible to see the cruelty of Nebuchadnezzar. Over in 2 Kings chapter 25, we see that, that King Nebuchadnezzar goes in and murders Zedekiah, that's the king in Israel, murders his sons in front of him and then blinds him so that the last thing he ever saw was his sons being murdered in front of him. This is the kind of guy we was. 
Nebuchadnezzar is being reminded and he's being called out, turn from your sin and turn from your iniquity. He's calling him to a righteousness so that so that God can bless him, so that God can, can honor him, so that God can, can give him these amazing gifts and rewards. That's God's heart. He doesn't want to have to judge us. That's why he's given fair warning. You see, the Bible says in John 16, 8, that he, when he comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. Guess what was happening right there? exactly what was happening. And when the Lord does this, we come under deep conviction of our sin and the fact that we need to be righteous to be made right in God's sight. And then listen, we in that moment then give in to what the Lord is doing or we continue to rebel. There's, there's only one of two choices. And I'm here today to tell you that sin will do to you what it did to Nebuchadnezzar. It will turn you into an animal. So rest assured that the Lord seriously will express the reality of his salvation, and then he will begin to specifically expose the rebellion of of sin. Why? Because he doesn't want you to face his judgment. He wants you to receive his love. He wants to welcome you into his family. He wants to make you right from the inside out. This is God and his loving kindness extending time for you and I to repent. But listen, I need you to know that if you don't, Thirdly, the Lord steadfastly enacts the rule of sovereignty. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 17, and the pride of humanity will be humbled, and the arrogance of people will be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. You see, I don't know if you caught it or not, but it's just like our vision here at the church. We want you to belong here. We want you to become here, but at some point in time, we will stand before you and say, who do you say that Jesus is? We will call you to give an account for what you think about Jesus. This isn't just a church where you just kind of get to come play along and hope that everything's okay and you never have to make any decisions in your life about sin or Jesus. No, there's coming a point. We will love you, but there will come a point when we do have to ask you those questions. You will be called to turn from sin, to come from just not conviction, but to come unto conversion. One day for you, friends, the alarm is going to sound, and it will be the final countdown. Verse 28 through 30, look there quickly, and we'll wrap this up. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. God's word is true. Whatever he says is going to happen is going to happen. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of the power for the glory of majesty? Well, that's interesting. Nebuchadnezzar in his pride walking around on the, his roof. Look at what all I've done. Look at what I've built. And then something super interesting happens in verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, the voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, 
sovereignty has been removed from you. His kingdom has been taken away from him. Verse 32 says, And you'll be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the fields. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven pairs of time will pass over until you recognize that the Most High is ruler of the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verse 33 says, Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grown like feathers, eagles, eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. He was struck with what some call boanthropy, which means somebody imagines himself as a cow or a bull and acts accordingly. Some people call it lycanthropy where a person believes that he or she is an animal and behaves like an animal. Whatever happened here, Nebuchadnezzar became subhuman. The one who thought he was superhuman now becomes subhuman. He lived with animals, not men. He ate grass, not food like a man. He lived and slept in the field and not in a, in a bed like a man. He had fingers and toenails like the claws of a bird, not those like a, a human. Sinclair Ferguson points out, he says, the one who refused to honor God's glory now loses his own. Refusing to share what he had with the poor, he becomes poorer than the poor. He becomes outwardly what his heart has been spiritually, and that's inwardly a beast before God. Do you hear the words of Galatians 6, 7? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, this he will also reap. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's heart has swollen with pride. And in God's loving kindness, he gives him a year to repent. I hope you see that there. The Lord is long-suffering. This was after four chapters and years of warnings and signs. But there comes a point when God says enough, and only God knows when that time is. Then he will say that you have walked in disobedience long enough, and he sends something to destroy your foundations that will rock you to the very core, because he will extend the rule of his sovereignty in your life, and there's nothing that you and I can do about it. You see, God was using Nebuchadnezzar as a picture to show us what will happen to us when we rebel against God. When we reject God, we give ourselves to sin, we become like animals and do what animals do, and then the Lord will humble us of our arrogance and pride. Rest assured, God will show you and God shows me that he is God and I am not all the time. Very quickly, let me tell you what's at stake here. It's the first of all, it's the roots of pride. I don't know if you saw that. The roots of pride. The root of pride is grounded in the failure to know that every good thing comes from the Lord. That's what the, the root of this is, is that we begin to believe and we deny that, that every good thing comes from God. He, Nebuchadnezzar just says, hey, look at what all I did. And many think, I have worked for everything I have. And they say, look at what I've done. God had no part in this. I did this all by myself. But you don't seem to realize the contributing factors that, that were in your life that you had no control over. You did not control where you were born. 
You do not control the time that you were born. You do not control the education that you received when you were younger. You didn't determine the society and culture you were born into. You didn't determine the influences that would shape your mind. You didn't even determine the genes that gave rise to your talents and your gifts that allowed you to be as smart as you really are. All that was completely out of your control, and it was God's doing from the very beginning. It's as, it's as if a good friend of mine, a Pastor J.D. Greer, he said this. He said, our lives should have one big footnote at the bottom. This came from God, not my doing. You see, the root of pride is grounded in this failure to acknowledge all that comes from God, but the root of pride is also grounded that we assume the good life will last forever. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was safe. He was on his roof doing what he, what he always does. He was the most powerful man in the entire world. But God has the power to shut down a man's kingdom. God has the power with one word to shut down the entire world. If you don't believe me, I just say one word, COVID, and you know how quickly it can happen. If one little disease can do that, don't you think one little word from God can do that? One mighty Civil War general boasted that he had never lost a battle, but then he became violently ill and died from a tick bite. I don't know, man. You might be in your kingdom thinking you've made it all, and then all of a sudden your family begins to fall apart. Maybe it's you face mental illness. Maybe the financial markets, they crash and you lose your retirement. You see, pride just says that the good life is going to last forever, and Satan's lie has always been that you surely won't die. So you think that, that, that the ranch you have or the career that you've established or the future you're preparing for, you say, look what all I've built. And with one single word, it can all come crashing down. That's at the root of pride. But then the fruits of pride very quickly are competitiveness. Nebuchadnezzar begins to say, it's all about me. And nobody compares with him. And this is simply a sure sign of pride when you're always comparing yourself to others. C.S. Lewis said that one of the quickest ways you can find out if you have pride is if other people's pride bothers you. You just, you're like, man, I hate how they're bragging. And they just think they're somebody. They just think their team's the best. You see, it's their pride is competing with yours. You're mad that they're getting attention and you're not. And the irony with pride is, is that you simply most of the time don't even recognize that you have pride, but it is so obvious to everyone else around you. C.S. Lewis also said that pride is a very funny disease because those who suffer from it the most never know it, but they always make everyone else around them sick. And gratitude, gratitude is the sign of humility. You know everything is a gift and you don't deserve any of it. You give glory to God and thank him. But when you get ungrateful, I need to tell you, it is a sure sign that you are dealing with pride. Entitlement, entitlement. Pride says that I deserve good things. I deserve this thing. Look at all I've done. I've worked so hard. I've, I've made sacrifices. I deserve this appreciation. I deserve this money. I deserve better health. I deserve a better marriage. I deserve a break. And when life is going well, pride, pride says, this is as it should be. Pride says, I deserve this blessing in my life. I'm owed this marriage. I'm owed these kinds of kids. I deserve this job. I'm glad I have these friends. I deserve them. And when things go poorly, pride says, this isn't fair. And you live with resentment. You blame others for how things have turned out or how they've let down. You even blame God. And it's a sure sign of pride for humility 
Do you have humility when things are going well? You simply say, I don't know how, God is just good. And when things are going bad, humility says, you know, God is growing me, and I know I need to become like Christ. I just thank God for allowing this to happen. Pride leads to entitlement, and humility leads to gratitude. Then there's overconfidence. Nebuchadnezzar thinks his kingdom is going to last forever. Self-will. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't think he needs to go to the future with God. He thinks all he, all he needs is, is all he has, and he's just going to make it all work by himself. But, but God says, you know what? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, you need to have a little fear of what I can do in your life. I don't know that anybody in the room that's terrified of oxygen. Is anybody in the room scared of oxygen? Just let me know. This illustration won't work. Listen to me. I know oxygen is essential to life. So my fear is I don't fear oxygen. I fear not having oxygen. <laughs> I try not to put myself in situations where I might not have oxygen. And I'm trying today to tell you, if you're trying to do life without God, you're foolish to think that you can do it without him. Just like we're foolish to think that we can't have oxygen. We don't fear oxygen because we fear it. We fear it because we know we need it. I'd be terrified to be in a place where I didn't have God guiding my past, guarding my present, and securing my future. I would be terrified if that was me. But then it leads to stinginess and exploitation. Daniel pleads for him to show mercy. And it's interesting there when he tells him to turn from your sin and show mercy to the poor. It's interesting that repentance is always tied to a new attitude toward the poor. Because pride is callous to the needs of others. To show mercy there literally means to complain on the behalf of. It can also mean to to make lovely or to show favor to. But to show mercy means to advocate for the needs of others. Pride will never allow you to advocate for anyone else but yourself. Pride says I'm entitled. But humility says I have to advocate for the needs of others. I want you to look up here at this picture. If you're under the age of 30, I'm sorry. You probably think this is me. <laughs> I get it. Long summer. I've been working out in the gym. I get it. This is Mike Tyson. I don't know if you know him. It's hard to describe what an icon he was when I was in middle school and high school. He, along with Michael Jordan, was one of the 80s greatest phenoms. He was a boxer like nobody had ever seen before. He had this whole string of heavyweight challenges between 1985 and 1995 that he knocked out most every single one of them in one minute or less. He even had this video game called Mike Tyson Punch-Out. And it used to be one of my favorite games. I love that game. Mike Tyson got so rich from boxing but there's a story that I read that he, he was driving his Ferrari one day and his Ferrari runs out of gas and he just left it on the side of the road never to pick it up. He thought it was an inconvenience. At the peak of his career, though, in 1990, Iron Mike squared off with a no-name fighter, Buster Douglas. This wasn't even supposed to be a challenge, and Tyson had knocked out his previous opponents in less than a minute. And so, so, so the bets were not, was Mike going to win, but just how long was he going to win? In 20 seconds, in 40 seconds, in 60 seconds? But Mike was so prideful about his success that he stayed out the night before partying because he didn't even worry about his opponent. And you can guess what happened. Next picture. 
In the 10th round, Buster Douglas knocked out Mike Tyson. I can remember it just like it was yesterday. Because it was kind of like Rocky III. Just come out a few years before, Rocky takes himself for granted. He gets fat and out of shape, and then he loses to Mr. T. And then Mick dies, and it's terrible, and it's a low point of the 80s for me. You see, but Mike Tyson thought he was special, and Buster Douglas showed him that he wasn't. Mike Tyson's life illustrates a tragic truth. Maybe you want to write this down. Defeat is difficult, but success can be fatal. You see, in Nebuchadnezzar 4, uh, Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is suffering from a bad case of success. And then the Almighty God knocks him out. Round one, I don't know if you recall it, was when God prospered Daniel and his friends after they defied the king's order to eat defiled foods forbidden by Jewish law. And at the end of the time of examination, these three guys, these four guys, were found to be smarter, healthier, and brighter than all the, the wise men. So round one definitely goes to God. Round two was when God gave Daniel the ability to do what none of Nebuchadnezzar's wise men could do, to reveal and interpret a mysterious dream, a dream about this gigantic statue warning Nebuchadnezzar about the setting up of a kingdom independent of God. And in that encounter, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that there was something special about Daniel's God. And he says, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Nebuchadnezzar was a little dazed in round two, but he still wasn't knocked out. He was kind of stepping back. And then round three begins. And, and, and one of my preacher friends calls round three, chapter three, the skirmish by the furnace. As one preacher called it. And where Nebuchadnezzar sets, he, he sets up this 90-foot gold statue of himself and commands everyone to bow down. But all these, these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to bow down. And there's this another confrontation between God and Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar throws these three teenagers into a fiery furnace. But instead of dying instantly, there's, they're up and walking around. And there's this fourth man like the son of God. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the fiery furnace. They haven't even been burnt. Their hair doesn't even smell funny nothing's touched him and Nebuchadnezzar exclaims in other words this God is one of a kind and surely he's taken a gut punch and he goes down for an eight count Nebuchadnezzar being the prideful man that he is gets back up and we begin round four and then in round four God says it's time to knock you out because God's word is true Proverbs 16 18 Pride goes before destruction, and the haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. If my team would come up here, and we're going to close this, and I'm sorry that I've kept you late. Let me just say it to you like this, if I haven't already lost you. Beloved, unless you go down, God's going to take you down. Unless you repent of your sin and come to Jesus Christ, I promise you there's far worse things than you can imagine waiting. Because God loves you, he, he sent me here, an angelic, if you will, to tell you. I beg you. 
I beg you to turn. I beg you to repent. Repent is, a, is an interesting word. It literally means a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. It's when I say, man, the things that God has said and the commands that God have and what God wants for me that, that I'm, I'm saying, I have been living my own way and I'm doing exactly what God says not to do. Repentance is when you say, wait, I'm wrong about this. And I'm wrong about who God is and what his word is. And I'm wrong about how I feel about my life. And I turn from my sin back to what God has said. And I humbly bow myself before him. That is repentance. And here's the God's honest truth. The reason many people in LaGrange and churches all over LaGrange and in this church, the reason most people have never moved from conviction about the things of God, we agree, to being converted, is because they've never repented. Pride is like a rooster saying to those in the barnyard that the sun rises each morning just to hear you crow. And I'm asking you this morning to humble yourself, to turn from your pride, and yield to the Holy Spirit this morning because the Lord will seriously continue to express the reality of his salvation. He will expose the rebellion of sin or else he will be left to enact the rule of his sovereignty. Would you stand to your feet? This morning, if you've never placed your faith and turned from your sin and humbled yourself and confessed your sin to God and asked him to forgive you based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, I'm asking you to join us here at the front and we'll help you do that. Maybe this message has provoked something in your heart about pride and you need to come and humble yourself before the Lord. You can do that at this altar. There'll be people there to pray with you and talk to you. Maybe there's something else in your life you'd like to pray about. Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, now may you speak to your people. And I pray it in Jesus' name.